Marius doesn't have English as a first language. It's always wonderful to hear somebody where it just rolls off their tongue so beautifully. Um, I'm going to call on Patrick who will do the scripture reading for us this morning from Exodus 4, after which um, Ryan Nibu will start his service and unpack this very interesting passage for us. Patrick. Exodus chapter 4, starting at verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt and see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, Let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him, let him alone. At that time she'd said bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. All right, thanks for that. Everyone who's uh, played a part in this morning's service so far. Good morning, Olsen Reformed Church. My name is Ryan, and I have the pleasure of trying to unpack today's text. Today, today's Bible text is a doozy. As some of you are aware, I'm doing some sort of ministry apprenticeship thing at Pathway to Life Church in Devonport. So working alongside our full-time pastor, whose name is Etienne. Well, I guess you could say he handed me this one to preach, Uh, He threw it at me, and uh, it threw me well and truly into the deep end. So, as this is a particularly obscure passage, please keep your Bibles handy as we dive into it this morning. So, I suspect that you might have similar questions to what I had when I first read this text. So, Moses was just given this job by God, and now God wants to kill him. What on earth is that about? And what does Moses' son's foreskin have to do with this? 
How can this text apply to us today? Where is Jesus in this? I could go on. My point is, this passage is a weird one. So weird, in fact, that in, um, in preparation for this, this sermon, I read words like this in commentaries. This passage contains some of the most enigmatic verses in the whole of the Old Testament. Now, I had to Google what enigmatic was, but, it, but basically it means it's difficult to interpret or mysterious. So today's text, yeah, it's a little clunky and disjointed, but hopefully, I trust, this sermon will not be. Before we fly into it this morning, would you allow me to pray? God, you are good. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can dive into it every week at church in small groups. And we can gain so, so much from it, Lord. It is, it is deep and there is much to be learned. I pray that today as we talk about it, uh, that you would speak, not me, that your words would come out, not mine, and that um, we can have a new appreciation of your blood and your love for us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's helpful to know what happens before and after today's story. So what happened just before today's text? It's a pretty famous story of God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. God speaks with Moses and tells him it's time to act. God wants to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt and he wants to use Moses as his spokesperson. Now Moses argues and moans and tries to weasel his way out of it but God doesn't let him. God instead gives him Aaron. Aaron would be the one to speak to Pharaoh on behalf of Moses, who's on behalf of God. Anyway, after this encounter and being told by God to go to Egypt, this is where today's passage starts off. So that's what happens before. Let's look at what happens afterwards. So God wants to rescue his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. And Moses plays a part in this little tiny thing called the Exodus, if you're familiar with the story, just forgive me for explaining a little. If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen up. God's people found themselves in Egypt as slaves. The reason they ended up there is kind of long-winded and hard to summarise, but basically about 400 years before today's story, there was a famine in the land and some pretty unique family connections within Egypt brought a family there. That family grew and grew and grew and eventually ended up becoming a slave nation for Egypt. After a while, the Israelites cried out to God and asked him for deliverance, deliverance from their slavery and the oppression from the Egyptians. These were God's people and he wanted them back where they belonged, under his care. So that's where Moses comes in. God uses Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh with the plagues. There's ten of them. There's locusts, frogs, blood, darkness and death, just to name a few. They sound pretty fun, don't they? So Pharaoh eventually, eventually gives in after losing his own firstborn son. And he says, I've had enough of this. Get out of here. And the Israelites are freed from slavery. So Moses leads them out of Egypt and into the wilderness. But there is a small problem. Pharaoh just lost his entire workforce. So shortly after releasing them, Pharaoh changes his mind and decides he wants his slaves back. The Israelites are pursued through the wilderness by the Egyptians. God parts the Red Sea for the Israelites. The Israelites walk through and the Egyptians chase after, but God brings the Red Sea upon them and swamps the whole Egyptian army. All right, so now we know what happened either side 
of today's story. Let's get into it. So if you look at this passage, you'll see it's kind of in four, roughly, roughly four chunks that don't necessarily flow really nicely from one to the other. Now the first part, it details Moses asking permission from his father-in-law to take his wife and kids back to Egypt with him. There's a confirmation from God saying that all the people in Egypt who wanted you dead are no more and some further instructions from God about what to do when he gets there. That's a pretty reasonable intro to this story. Now the second part, the second part just seems to be thrown in there to make us go, what? This very, very strange encounter where God wants to kill Moses. Moses' wife, however, saves the day and circumcises their son and touches him with the foreskin. What a weird thing to do. And then the third part completely shifts both location and character in that the story shifts to Aaron, the guy who's going to be Moses' spokesperson. And this paragraph gives some details around a divine meeting between Moses and Aaron, whereby Moses fills Aaron in on God's plan for rescuing the Israelites from Egypt. And then suddenly, in the last few verses, Moses and Aaron are in Egypt. And they're showing the elders and the leaders of the Israelites miraculous signs. Like I said, this text is a little clunky and a little disjointed, but there is so much more to this strange, strange chunk of 14 verses than we have time for today. So we're going to just focus on a couple of things this morning. Anyone want to guess which parts? Let's address the elephant in the room, shall we? What on earth is going on that night? So Moses is just about to be killed by God and to save his life, Moses pulls out some jagged old rock and circumcises their son. Now just to be clear, I assume most of us know what circumcision is, but for those who don't, get ready to squirm in your seat. Circumcision is just a small surgery and Google says it is the surgical removal of the foreskin. That's kind of weird. Moses' son was not circumcised as an Israelite. And that is a big deal if you're an Old Testament believer who's going to lead a bunch of God's people, his chosen people, out of slavery in Egypt and into the Promised Land. Circumcision is part of the covenant that God made with Abraham nearly, four, nearly half a century before today's text. So we can read about that in Genesis chapter 17. It says this, This is my covenant with you, that's Abraham, and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. So whether you're born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your, in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Circumcision was a big deal in the Old Testament. So why had Moses' son snuck under the radar when it came to circumcision? Well, there's perhaps a few reasons. So Moses grew up in Egypt. He was raised in Egyptians, and the Egyptians did not circumcise as the Israelites did. Israelite circumcision symbolised who were God's people and who were not. 
This, and it had been some 450 years since God had made that covenant with Abraham. So chances are that Moses wasn't all that familiar, or maybe not all that passionate about this particular law. So there's that, as well as being married to a Midianite wife, that didn't help the cause either. Midianites were actually opposed to the idea of infant circumcision. Midianites, to the best of our knowledge, circumcised once a man was engaged to be married. Now apparently there was sufficient time given to heal before the wedding. So it would seem Moses' son Gershom was raised as a Midianite, as a Midianite, perhaps out of respect for the in-laws. So there's a few possible reasons Moses' son was not circumcised. And this is a problem for an Old Testament Israelite. Let's check out that last verse of Genesis 17 again, verse 14. It says, Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Breaking God's covenant, that's a big deal. Moses could not have led the people out of slavery and out of Egypt, having broken a covenant with God. If like me, then you might be wondering, was God just skimming over Moses' resume again, looking at his credentials? You know, he's a cert for in farming, he's done some leadership stuff, hasn't got his son circumcised, he's a prominent leader in Egypt a while ago. But what? I didn't see that in the interview. Do you think that God only just figured it out that Moses' son was not circumcised? And thought, I better end this now before it goes bad. No, God knew. God knows everything. So why? Why this sudden, somewhat surprise attack on Moses' life? So as one commentary I read put it, it's so Moses gets a first-hand experience of salvation. What do I mean by that? So that Moses gets a first-hand experience of salvation. Moses was literally staring death in the face. And whatever it was that Moses faced, maybe it was sickness, maybe it was injury, maybe it was a threat from an enemy, but who knows, the Bible does not say. Whatever it was that threatened his life, we do know that Moses and his family knew that he was on death row. They could see he was going to die. However, thanks to Moses' wife, Zipporah, and presumably Gershom, again, doesn't say, so presumably it was Gershom, his firstborn son, Moses' life was spared. So maybe it's helpful to think of God kind of firing like a warning shot. So warning shots are fired to get someone's attention and to let the culprit know that they mean business. That and the next shot will not miss its target. God was not messing around here. This was a powerful message to Moses and that he'd better take God's covenant seriously or there will be trouble. So Moses had a first-hand experience of salvation. Moses was saved by blood. There's a lot of emphasis placed on blood throughout the whole Bible, actually. There's circumcision, sacrifices, the Passover, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood of that makes atonement for one's life. Now, atonement isn't a very common word in the world today. It means to be made right or whole, and when we are wrong or broken. So, when blood makes atonement for one's life, it means it pays for, it covers us, it makes us whole or clean once more. So, in the New Testament, Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
So we'll head back to the idea of being saved by the blood just a little later. Let's just check out another aspect of today's text, the Exodus. I touched on the story of Exodus a little earlier on. It's a pretty famous story of God stopping at nothing, at nothing to save the people and show his strength. So God cares for his people, perhaps more than we can ever know or appreciate. Look at verses 22 and 23 of Exodus 4 again. It says, Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. He calls him his firstborn son. This image of a protective father made me immediately think of the father like Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. Who's seen the movie Taken out of curiosity? Oh, yes, good movie. Anyway, the movie is about a father rescuing his daughter from being taken and trafficked across Europe. There's this infamous scene where Liam Neeson has just learned of his daughter's capture and he's actually on the phone to the captor. This is what he says. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go, now that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. If you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. To which the guy on the phone responds, good luck. And hangs up. Anyway, my point is that God's particular set of skills far outweigh Liam Neeson's. That, and he feels incredibly protective over you, over me, over his people. Much more so than Liam Neeson does for his daughter. Do we think of God like this? A God who stops at nothing to ensure his people remain close to him. The God who rescued his people, the Israelites, out of slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. So 2 Thessalonians 3, 3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and he'll strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. So you might be thinking, if you picked it up earlier, why would God wait 400 years? That's how long the Israelites were in Egypt for. Why would God wait 400 years to save the Israelites? 400 years is an awfully, awfully long time. Or perhaps you're thinking, I'm suffering now. Why doesn't God help me or save me? Now, I don't blame you for thinking like this. I certainly have wrestled with thoughts like this in the past and in preparation for this sermon. But it all seems to boil down to timing. Not our timing, but God's. Now that might seem entirely unsatisfactory, I know. There is a sermon on this topic alone. Just know that God has orchestrated everything. We can't see what God sees, nor can we tell him what to do. It is essential to trust his judgment and timing for all things. So God would stop at nothing to save his people from the Egyptians, sending plagues, parting the Red Seas, leading them through the Promised Land. You know that he's done something even more incredible for us? Let's cast our minds back to that elephant in the room discussion we had just a little earlier on. God's covenant of circumcision. So we know that circumcision was a big deal in the Old Testament. We know that it was a mark of who were God's people and who were not. We know that there's a lot of emphasis on the blood being spilt for the forgiveness of sins. We saw that Moses' life was literally saved by his son's foreskin and the blood from it, which, by the way, his wife touched him with in order to mark Moses with the blood. 
Moses' sin was made clear in that he had not kept God's covenant of circumcision. Gershom's blood was a substitute for Moses. So this excerpt is from a Bible commentary on this passage. It explains it better than I can, so here it is. Listen closely. First God showed Moses the wages of sin by placing him under his divine wrath. But then God's deadly wrath was turned aside, or propitiated, to use the proper term for it, by the blood of circumcision. Blood is mentioned specifically because in order to be delivered from death, Moses had to be touched by the blood of the sacrifice and thereby identified with it. It was not a full sacrifice, of course. Nevertheless, that small portion of circumcised skin represented Gershom's entire person, offered in Moses' place. Now Moses was saved from God's wrath by the blood shed by a substitute. Does that sound familiar? Saved from God's wrath by the blood shed by a substitute? Like Moses, humankind has consistently and continually messed things up. We deserve to be cast from God's presence and have no right to call him Father. But, and that is a big, big, big but, Jesus came for you. He came for me. God stopped at nothing to rescue his people from Pharaoh. God rescuing his people from the ruthless rule and enslavement of Pharaoh is nothing compared to the rescuing of us from the sin and darkness through Jesus dying on the cross. God really pulled out the big guns um, for us when he sent Jesus to earth to live, to love and teach, to die on the cross, to rise again and to conquer sin and death. Jesus' perfect sacrifice, his blood shed for us, for you, for me, defeated sin once and for all. Moses was saved by his son's blood and sacrifice. We are saved by Christ's blood and sacrifice. Moses experienced first-hand salvation by the blood of his son, we experience salvation through the blood of God's Son, Jesus. Jesus' blood was a substitute for our own on the cross. God has an intense, stop-at-nothing, all-consuming love for us, so much so that he would do more than send ten plagues and part the Red Sea, but rather send his Son, Jesus, to earth and to the cross to bleed for you. Do you know and believe this for yourself? Take a moment to appreciate once again what it is that God has done for us. Jesus, the Son of God, took the nails for you and for me. He made a way for us to be right with God. We're forgiven. Praise God for that every waking moment. Perhaps this idea is new to you. It's just plain strange to you. Or is Jesus nothing more to you than an angry wo a word you say when you're feeling frustrated or angry? I sure hope that someone here today fits a description like that. That is why churches are here. That is why we do what we do. We have the best news ever. And if today is the first time you've heard it, please speak to someone here. Chat with me. Chat with whoever you came with. Find someone here to speak to. We would love the opportunity to get to know you, to hear your thoughts, your questions, your experiences, to point you towards a God who is fiercely, fiercely protective over you, a God who loves you more than you can ever understand, a God who has forgiven you through Jesus' bloodshed and sacrifice for us. I want to wrap up with a final passage from 1 John 4, and that's uh, reading verses 9 and 10. It says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son 
into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray. God, whatever our lives look like, whether we've walked with you for decades, months or minutes, maybe we've never given you a thought until today. Whatever the case, you know us intimately. You love us fiercely. You want us back where we belong, under your care and in a relationship with you. Draw us nearer to yourself today, God. Help us appreciate more and more your blood spilt for us. We want more of you in our lives.